And uh, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles in whatever form you have those and uh, turn to the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's the book of Obadiah. It's in the, the back of your Old Testament. It's sandwiched between Amos and Jonah. And uh, so we're going to look at the entire prophecy of Obadiah today. It's only 21 verses. I should be able to get done with that in about 45 or 50 minutes. Um, but any, no, it'll be a little shorter than that. But if we are going to understand the prophecy of Obadiah, we have to go back all the way to the book of Genesis. Because you're not going to get the prophecy of the book of Obadiah until you go back and consider a couple of brothers. I got to confess, I was not blessed with a brother. I am sandwiched between two sisters. That had its own strife and challenges, trust me. But over the years, I've gotten to know some friends that were brothers. I've observed brothers. Uh, and, and it seems that, from my observation, brothers and competition, or shall we say conflict, tend to go hand in hand. It, it seems that part of growing up with a brother, I see that hand, it's, part of growing up with a brother is competition. It's You, you kind of pound on each other, you show your love by wrestling with one another, and, and it's just all about that. But then, I'll tell you, the brothers I know, let an outsider mess with my kid brother and you're going to pay. You don't mess with my brother. You don't mess with my sister. Families stick together in the best of worlds. It wasn't so with these two brothers. They were twins. Literally, we find in Genesis 25 that they were wrestling with each other before they were even born to the point where their mother was in such turmoil, she went to God and said, why is this going on inside of me? And she was reminded that they're wrestling because they're going to be brothers that are in conflict and that one day everything's going to be turned upside down and the older will serve the younger. Their names were Jacob and Esau. Or actually when they were born, it was Esau and Jacob. And even their birth. You know, Esau came out first, but Jacob was holding on to his heel like, you're not going out ahead of me. It was just that kind of turmoil that shaped their lives. Their story begins in Genesis 25, but it ends in Obadiah. Esau was a man's man. Esau was a man of the field, of the forest. He hunted. He enjoyed the great outdoors. He enjoyed the challenge of the hunt. He enjoyed bringing in the wild game. It was his thing. Jacob, Jacob hung out at home. I, Jacob was kind of like a chef. I mean, we'll see in a minute. He made a stew so great that his brother would sell his birthright for it. But as he lived there in the tents, Jacob watched. He observed. He learned. He saw how things were planned and, and all, and that would serve him well. As I said, God had said the older would serve the younger. In other words, what God was saying was, Jacob is the one I've chosen. 
Somehow that got lost in the shuffle. So Jacob figured he would help things out. So one day Esau comes in from the field. He's a man of the field. When you're out in the field, you've got to read and react. You've got to see what's going on. You've got to respond. And he comes out from the field. And, and what happened to that, that read and react, is he became very impulsive. And he comes in one day and he smells this lentil stew that his brother is making. And whoo, it feels good. And when you've been out traipsing around in the wilderness, up and down, it's dry, it's hot. You come in, you need food. And he said, sell me some, or give me some of that stew or I'm going to die. He was a little exaggerating too. Jacob says, well, tell you what. I won't give you some, but I'll sell it to you. I'll sell it to you for your birthright. Now here's what that means. That means that I want you to, in essence, trade places with me. I want to be treated now as the older brother. And what that even means further is when our dad dies, when Isaac dies, and the, the inheritance is split up, I'll get the double portion. So what they do did for, for two brothers is they would divide everything up in thirds. And so Jacob is saying, I want two-thirds of the inheritance, you get a third. Esau's like, dude, I'm going to die anyway, so sure, whatever. And he gets the soup. And we learn in that moment, in fact, otherwise in Scripture, we're told this too, Esau reveals that he is a very impulsive, self-centered, instant gratification type of guy. Esau goes on in chapter 26 of Genesis and he marries two Hittite women and finds out that they were a source of grief to his mother and father because Esau really didn't care about his mother and father. He cared about what brought him pleasure. Well, years go down and Isaac's getting old and it's time to give the blessing. The blessing is something that's so important. It was a blessing that, that, that involved a variety of things, words of uh, value, physical touch, uh, a special vision, some things like that. And Isaac knows that it's time to give the blessing. And uh, he calls in Esau. Now, God had told Isaac, the older will serve the younger. And somehow, again, just maybe it was disregard for that. We don't, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we, we don't want to assume too much. But Rebekah, Isaac's wife, hears him tell Esau, go out and get some food for me and bring it back and I'll give you the blessing. So she conjures up a plan, a plan that shows how Isaac's taste buds had totally been obliterated. She goes out and she gets a goat and she has it butchered. She tells Jacob, take the, the skin of the goat, put it on your arm so that you're hairy because Esau was really hairy and Jacob wasn't. And so, you know, we're going to, and, and we're going to, you're going to put on some of Esau's clothes and, and everything. You're going to go in and you're going to serve, we're going to fix this goat to taste like venison. I've had both. They don't taste alike. But when you're as old as Isaac and you can't see and your sense of smell is going, it's meat. And so Jacob goes in and, and Isaac is fooled and he gives Jacob the blessing. Basically saying, everything I have is yours. It's, it's, it's important. Esau comes in 
and he comes in and he brings the venison. It's prepared just the way his dad likes it. And, and, and he says, I don't have a blessing for you. It, it, it is no end of distress for Esau. And, and he is deeply hurt, deeply betrayed, and very angry. And he holds a grudge and he says, I am going to kill my brother. Jacob is sent away for protection. Sent away back to his home, or the homeland to find a wife that's not a Canaanite. And he ends up staying away for over 20 years. And during that time, what's Esau do? Well, according to Genesis 28, he goes and marries another woman. He adds a third wife. She happens to be a daughter of Ishmael. The same brother that was brought about in, by Abraham and Hagar that turned out to be somebody who was actually a competitor to Isaac. He knows it will cause his parents more grief. Doesn't care. Esau's fortunes grow. Jacob's fortunes grow. And Jacob has children and flocks and herds. He becomes wealthy. And after 20 years, he leaves Laban and he comes with all of his flocks. And, and he's told Esau's coming out to meet you. And, and, and he sends ahead gifts for Esau. He, he, he remembers when you have betrayed someone and you meet them years later, you still remember the betrayal. And he's fearful. That night Jacob wrestles with God and ends up walking the rest of his life with a limp because God humbles him. The brothers meet. And the meeting isn't what Jacob thought it would be. Esau falls on him and weeps and cries and welcomes him and is so impressed and all. But you know, it's a short-lived reunion. Esau moves south. South of the Dead Sea, a land that initially is called Seir. But out of his lineage, according to Genesis 36, there comes a nation, a nation called Edom. That nation, located just south of the Dead Sea, goes all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. They controlled that gulf. The nation of Edom had a capital city named Bozrah, but it had another important city, the city that you hear more about. Its name was Selah, but the Greeks ended up calling it Petra. Old school time, Indiana Jones, search of the Holy Grail, they go to Petra. Getting into Petra was not easy. Petra was built into the cliffs of the mountains south of the Dead Sea. The entrance to Petra was maybe as wide as the, as the aisle right here. It was very narrow. So you couldn't send a whole army in. You had to almost go in single file. They felt that they were indefensible. Petra and, and Bosra and some of the cities, they built dwellings up in the cliffs. They built temples in the cliffs. It was amazing. The Edomites felt that they were unbeatable. In fact, in the book of Numbers, we read about Edom. In the book of Numbers, when Moses and the children of Israel are coming through, they ask permission to pass through the territory of Edom on a major north-south trade route called the King's Highway. 
And they asked permission. We're going to, we want to take the king's highway, but we're going to be going through your backyard. And we promise to stay on the king's highway. We're not going to go out and eat any of your crops. We're going to stay there. And Edom says, absolutely not. You come out, on, you, you, you set one foot onto our border. We are going to take you out. It's their brother. These are their brothers. This is what they're called in Scripture. The Edomites, they're your brothers. And so Moses and the children of Israel find another route. Not only are they remembered in the Bible for not allowing Israel to pass through, they're remembered in the Bible for rejoicing when the nations of Israel and Judah are taken captive. They're known for assisting Babylon in the destruction of Jerusalem. The pride of Esau, the lack of concern for others, the bitterness in how he believed God had unfairly treated him somehow got passed down from generation to generation to generation until a nation grew up bitter and angry and proud. And that's where the book of Obadiah steps in. Obadiah uh, was a prophet. We, we, we know virtually nothing about him. There are several Obadiahs in the Bible, but none of them really fit the timing of this prophet. He probably prophesied somewhere around the line of 586 B.C. or B.C.E., however you want to say that. Uh, God speaks through him against the nation of Edom for the matter, for the way they've treated their brothers. But more to the point, and I think more to our point for today, God speaks against their pride. We may not be in a situation where we've neglected a long-lost relative, but every single one of us wrestles with pride. Every one of us. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a chapter that he calls The Greatest Sin, and it's a chapter on pride. Now, the Edomites, they, they were worshiping people. They worshiped in these elaborate temples, but they did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not learn what it meant to be humbly dependent upon a God that was greater than them. They were proud. Today I want to point out from this prophecy against the land of Edom some of the aspects of pride, aspects that we could each fall prey to. And then we're going to finish up by just looking at just a few simple ways that we can be overcoming pride. Let me begin by just reading the first three verses of Obadiah. I would say Obadiah chapter 1, but since it's only one chapter, that would be redundant. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourselves, Who can bring me down to the ground? The first thing we learn about pride is right out of the chute. Pride is self-deceptive. 
Pride deceives us into thinking that we have all the answers for our own safety and security. Pride deceives us into thinking that we have made our mark on the world on our own. The fact of the matter is there is no self-made person at all. No person gets to any heights on their own. There's always somebody who teaches, somebody who challenges. There's always somebody else in the room who's smarter, somebody else who has another idea. But pride says, I did this. It's all me. The deceit of pride is seen in their self-deception and their self-sufficiency. They carved out these kingdoms out of the rocks and and people thought, well, that's impossible. They did it. I'm sure it was hard work. I mean, you think about it. You know, they did it without modern tools. They, They did it with hammers and chisels, but they did it. But they were only successful in all of their existence as a nation because of treaties they had made and because of natural defenses that they didn't make. They didn't make the cliffs. They just carved things out of the cliffs. They didn't make the mountains. They just learned how to dwell in the mountains. But they thought they were indefensible or invincible. Who can bring us down? Pride deceives us into thinking we don't need God. And God's warning is that they will be brought down. He says in verse 4, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And history bears that out. By the 5th century B.C., Eden was under Arab control. By the 3rd century, the area was overrun by a group of people called the Nabataeans. And they eventually became known as the Edomians. And there was a very famous family that came from there. A family whose name was the Herods. Herod was from the ancient Edomites. But today... All that exists are ruins in places like Petra, a monument to the foolishness of self-sufficiency and self-deceptive pride. God goes on in, in this prophecy and he, he talks about what the thieves and the robbers are going to do, how it's going to, then verses 5, 6 through 9 basically say everything's going to be wiped out. You know, a thief comes and only takes what he can carry. A grape picker only might leave a few grapes, but that's not going to happen with you. You're going to be ransacked. All of your treasures are going to be pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. They're going to be overcome. They're going to be deceived even by those they thought were friends. In fact, Babylon eventually turned on them too. And we see in verse 10, Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. The second thing we learn about pride, pride is revealed through hostility. Obadiah uses the word violence. You were violent. You were hostile to your brother. Violence shows itself in so many ways. The word translated violence means that which is wrong, that which is cruel, that which is unjust. Sometimes we only look at violence as physical. 
But violence is so much greater than that. Hostility and violence can be emotional. It can be mental. It can be come about in a form of control, exercising power over someone else. As I said, when the children of Israel said, can we, can we just take the highway through your land? They were threatened with violence. Pride in the form of violence says, I'm more powerful than you. I can control you. And note that this violence is against the brother. Brothers are supposed to stick together. Brothers are supposed to be for each other. Today we might use the term abuse. Abuse and abusive behavior is pride gone mad. And God takes abuse very seriously. And he will deal with it. And God also shows great compassion to the one who's been abused. And he promises in his day his vengeance. Edom's actions were not lost on God. Your actions and my actions are not lost on God. Verse 11. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, speaking of Jacob, their brother, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Pride is revealed through indifference. Israel's carried away, they're standing aloof. <laughs> Big deal. <laughs> you know, eh. they, literally, the, 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 the literal translation would be they stood on the other side. Like they're being carried away over here, we're just standing here watching. They didn't raise a finger, they didn't do anything to stop it. They thought more of themselves and more of their safety and more of their comfort than anything else. When I choose to be indifferent about your sufferings or your concerns or your hurts, then I am acting in a prideful way. When I choose to be indifferent about my wife's needs or my children's education or my neighbor's troubles, I'm acting in pride. Pride always puts my concerns first. Pride never cares about you or your concerns unless those concerns somehow affect me. And what indifference does is it leads to actually gloating over the misfortune of another. I don't care about you. I'm not even concerned about you. <laughs> You're getting what you deserve. That's the picture painted by the prophet. Edomites, in, a, in essence, cheering as they saw the misfortune of Judah. When they got up that morning and they opened up the Bozra Tribune and they read about the carnage brought about Jerusalem, it brought a smile to their face. As they watched the long line of prisoners being carried off to Babylon, among those probably people like Daniel carried off to Babylon, they celebrated. You say, oh, I would never do that. There's a, there's a quote 
It was forever attributed to Mark Twain. I did a little research. It really wasn't said by him. It was said by a man by the name of Clarence Darrow, who was a, a lawyer during the Scopes Monkey Trial. And he said this, I've never wished a man dead, but I've read some obituaries with great pleasure. You know, we, we chuckle and we go, ooh, that kind of gets me right there. Mark Twain's quote was, I, was, I didn't attend the funeral, but I wrote a letter saying I approved. We can be, this is the thing about pride. Pride is so built into who we are that it, it ekes out in different ways. And the problem is we've all been there at some point or another. I know he was a real pain in the neck. But did you really want him to get fired and his whole family to suffer? I know she was mean to you in high school. But is it right to gloat when her marriage blows up? Sometimes we couch our pride in statements like, well, they're just getting what they deserve. Or we'll say things like, well, you know, they have to live with the consequences of their own actions. And we have to be so careful not to gloat over the misfortune of others. When we do that, we really know better than the Edomites who rejoiced when their brothers were carried into captivity. Remember again, the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because I wouldn't want my neighbor to gloat over my misfortune. Verses 13 and 14 give us another example of pride. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, or nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Pride is revealed through exploitation. The, the picture here is one that leads toward a description of looting. Uh, far beyond that, they, they, they actually attacked the fugitives, the refugees. You know, we've been watching the news over the last few months since February of refugees trying to leave Ukraine. And, and, and it breaks our heart when sometimes they are attacked. That's when, when some, you know, civilian casualties do happen, but if you have the choice, you let the civilians go. You let them get out of there. You, that's not who your, your fight is against, but here they, they went after the fugitives, the refugees, the civilians. In other words, they, they were taking advantage of the misfortune. It's easy to do. It's easy to slip into. My first year out of Bible college, I got home, and I needed a car. Uh, I was working for a company. I was working a company that did asphalt on the highways. This was in Kansas, where the temperatures would typically get to 95 to 100. The asphalt is usually 300 degrees, and the humidity was in the 80s. And uh, so it was tired, hot work. But I needed to get to work and get home. 
We saw a vehicle offered in the newspaper, a 1970 Plymouth Sports Satellite with an eight-track stereo. We are talking. We, it was for $700. We went to look at the car. It was pretty good shape. We asked the guy why he was selling it. And he said, well, I, I bought a new car and a new truck, and I'm kind of over my head, and I just got to get some cash for this one. I offered him 350 and he took it like that. I exploited. I had the 700. I exploited that person's circumstance. It's so easy. I drove away saying, got me a good deal. It's more, you know, goodness, what was I, 20 years old? I don't know if the guy's around. You know, it's, it can't be fixed. Have you ever done that? I, I looked, I thought about that. I looked back at it. I did that. It's so easy. That's how, that's how pervasive and insipid pride is. It's, it's just so easy. Or maybe it's the other way around. Someone's really desperate. You have an item and they really need it. They're desperate for it. And you have the opportunity of selling it to them at a reasonable price or getting top dollar. Or maybe you could even... Just give it to them and not take anything from it. Well, i got to get something from it, though. And, and it's so easy to play the game of exploitation without thinking about it. Esau knew what it was like to be exploited. He taught his children, don't ever let anybody take advantage of you. Don't ever let anybody exploit you. In fact, learn to take advantage of them first, especially if they're your brothers in Judah. And God said, I see it, and I'm going to deal with it. In the last, in verses 15 to 18, we find this next thing. God eventually turns pride back on itself. Note the warning in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Remember, there are potentially many days of the Lord in Scripture. This one is for Edom. He says it's going to be a time, Eden, when you are going to suffer in the same manner in which you have made others suffer. Your pride is going to come back on you. Listen, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, all nations will drink continually. Now, you know, that can get a little confusing, but there's a great translation of Scripture by Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, called The Message. Let me read these verses from Eugene Peterson's The Message. God's judgment day is near for all the godless nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you did will boomerang back and hit your own head. Just as you partied on my holy mountain, all the godless nations will drink God's wrath. They'll drink and drink and drink and they'll drink themselves to death. But not so on Mount Zion. There's respite there, a safe, holy place. 
the family of Jacob will take back their possessions from those who took them from them. That's when the family of Jacob will catch fire. The family of Joseph become a fierce flame, while the family of Esau will be straw. Esau will go up in flames. Nothing left of Esau but a pile of ashes. God said it, and it is so. God will one day repay. Edom no longer exists. Just a bunch of rocks and ruins south of the Dead Sea. But God calls us to be people of grace. God calls us to give to others, to be generous. God calls us to be even willing to let our grace be taken advantage of. You see, grace is an act of faith in God that he notices and will one day set things right. One day his kingdom will rule. Now I believe, because I did it myself, everything I did to describe pride, I would argue with myself about it. Well, it's not really me. I don't do those things. And I know I've used phrases like, well, it's just good business. Sometimes you have to just, you know, do it to survive. Because pride is self-deceptive. And at the risk of being very simplistic, but due to time, I'm only going to give you three overcoming principles. One, we overcome pride when we let God be God in our lives. What does that mean? That means you believe God when he tells you that he humbles the proud. That means you believe God when he tells you that when you humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, he will lift you up at the right time. That means you believe God when he reminds you that if you seek him first, all your needs will be met. When I let God be God in my life, I overcome pride, or I begin the process of it. Two, we overcome pride when we are dependent in relationship to God and interdependent in relationship with one another. Don't lose that reality. Dependent on God, interdependent with one another. None of us are an island. I need you. You need me. We need each other. We need community. You know, we're at a stage of life when we get to look back and see our grandkids growing up now and things like that. But I will tell you, and I've told many people this, when my kids were teenagers, I needed good, godly, other voices in their lives. I needed other people who would speak truth to them because I knew, and I'll show my age, I knew that it came a point that my voice in my kids' lives sounded just like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And they, you know, and I needed that. I needed that interdependence on other people, but I didn't overly depend on those people. I depend on God for my relationship, for my security, for my strength, for my salvation. 
salvation. I'm interdependent. Because you know what? When I was a youth pastor, there were parents that needed my voice in the lives of their kids. No one knows everything all the time. In fact, that person who will never be taught, never be corrected, won't allow themselves to be challenged, thinks they know it all, thinks they have it all down, thinks they're all that in a bag of chips, that's the person who ends up being very lonely. Interdependence is the healthy expression of humility, and I think it's the healthiest form of relationship. I depend on God. I'm interdependent on others. And when I get that right, it brings the pride level down. I need other people. I need desperately God. Three, we overcome pride or we begin the process when we see ourselves in light of the person of God. Newsflash, there is one God. He's not you. He's the creator. We're the creatures. The prophet Isaiah expressed it best. You, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Isaiah 64, 8. God created and shaped and molded each of us who he wanted us to be. You have the gifts and talents and abilities you have, and they are different than the gifts and talents that I have because that's how God determined it. I need to see myself in light of the person of God. While it's not wrong to acknowledge what we do well, God has given us each abilities. I need to remember that it's not about me, it's about God. God says, I am the creator, you're the creature. Creature, Keep that order in mind. See yourselves in light of the person of God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who provides for you, who gave you all the abilities you have. It's about God. And when I realize it's about him and not me, I can be thankful for the abilities he's given me. I can be thankful for the things that I do well, but I submit them to him. The lesson... For the nation of Edom, for all of us, is simply this. When you and I fail to respond to God's grace and depend instead only on our own wits and pride, we have everything to lose and nothing to gain. When I depend only on me, when I think I am the one who made it all happen, I have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder from your word. It's again like we've seen so many times with the prophets. Easy to talk about. Not always easy to do. So Lord, as we go into this week, may we learn again what it means to humble ourselves in the eyes of the Lord, to remember that we depend on you, but we are interdependent on so many other people. And in fear and trepidation, I say, humble us, Lord, so that you can lift us up. In Jesus' name, amen.